to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, gaimiabaptist.org.au. Good morning, church. Um, got the pleasure to bring you the Bible reading this morning. It is from 2 Corinthians, verse 23 to 2, verse 11. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it. For it was in the order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your faith, for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it to too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Good morning. It's good to have you here this morning uh, as uh, we gather around the Word of God and with one another. Uh, And uh, we're in this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians, or this introduction to this letter. Uh, This letter is something that we're going to be preaching through over the course of the year, not that we're going to be preaching it for 40 weeks, but we're going to kind of keep coming back to it over the course of the year. And today we're actually going to be looking at the passage that followed on from that reading. But I wanted to remind you, want to remind you of the context in which Paul is writing. Paul is writing to a group of believers for whom he cares deeply, but with whom he is having some significant tension. I don't know about you, but when I uh, encounter situations where people I care for uh, also happen to be people that I am struggling relationally with, it's tempting to step back from those relationships, isn't it? 
It's tempting to say, you know what, this is just a little bit too hard. Uh, how about we figure some, out, some other way for this to work? And yet Paul makes it very, very clear that he is not going to back away from this relationship. He's not going to back away from this really problematic situation. I mean, just hearing again what Trev read for us out of that opening section, I mean, there's, there's situations where um, the whole group in Corinth had basically ousted somebody and now they were repentant and they had to be brought back in and Paul assures them that he's forgiven them and he's talked earlier about the, the grief filled visit, his painful visit, a letter full of tears. This is the situation then that leads into what we're looking at today in terms of this transition into the main part of what Paul wants to address. So I want to turn your attention to, starting in verse 12, kind of continuing on from what was read for us. And we're going to look at kind of the four aspects in this kind of transition piece. There is on the one hand, Paul's, an expression of Paul's deep concern for his, for his friends. Secondly, he uses a really surprising image to describe Christian ministry. He asks the critical question in the book, and then he provides us with the start of an answer. And all of this sits at what scholars call the beginning of the great digression. Uh, so in verse 12, it says, Paul says, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Paul does not refer to Titus again until chapter 7 when he lets them know that I finally found Titus. So this introduces for us this digression. And a digression is different than a tangent. A tangent wanders off in the forest and dies. You know it's a tangent because the speaker goes, now where was I, right? That's the sign of a good tangent. A digression is a little bit more purposeful. A digression is meant to kind of circle around, picking up some momentum and speed before it comes back into the same argument. So Paul here has reminded them about just how much pain there is in their relationship, right? How painful, how, how the, the misunderstandings, you go, go back further to the beginning of the book, and there's misunderstandings about his intentions, about did he mean yes when he said yes, and why did he change all his plans, and it just, it's really tense. And he says, so in that tension, I went looking for Titus. I wanted to hear news. I wanted to know if this was going to get worse or whether this was going to get better. And now he begins this digression. It seems like he goes off track, off course from this painful relationship. But in reality, he is driving towards a very significant point that he'll return to later in the letter and we probably will get to in August. So you're going to have to hang on for the exciting conclusion of the great digression, right? But I want to draw your attention in that first little report of his looking for Titus to draw your attention to the overwhelming concern he has. Did you hear how he describes what happens? I, I went to, to Troas and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Now, for those of you who know Paul's life, does Paul strike you like the kind of guy who leaves an open door just opened and not gone through? Does he strike you as the kind of person when God opens the door to preach the gospel, he goes, mm, not right now. Like, that's not Paul at all. Remember a few weeks ago when Rox was preaching about finding the one? She used that passage in uh, Acts chapter 16 where Paul and his companions tried to get into Asia, but the Spirit of Jesus said no. 
So they went to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there either. Now, apart from the weirdness about what it means for the Spirit of Jesus to say no, what we, the image we get is someone who is not waiting passively for a door to magically opening. He's trying all the doorknobs. He's walking through the neighborhood, testing front doors to see if there's one that's open. And if there is, he's going to walk through it. So here, Paul says, there was an open door for me. There was an opportunity for me to preach the gospel. But I had no peace of mind about you. I was so concerned for you. I was so concerned for the gospel and its impact in your life. I could not in good conscience go through that door. So I let other people do the work. It'd be like me leaving an opportunity to talk about a hockey game to one side. That's how concerned I was. I didn't even talk about hockey, right? This is how concerned Paul is. He is deeply concerned for them, which then leads into this very surprising image that he uses. But thanks be to God, he says in verse 14, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Uh, the Roman procession, a triumph, was well known in the ancient world. It's probably not as well known for us. The closest might be when a sports team wins a championship and they get paraded through the city. Everyone gathers and there's the trophy and there's all the bells and whistles, all that kind of stuff. But in a Roman procession, it was a little bit different. Uh, they were uh, held for successful generals. Uh, the generals and members of their armies and legions would follow after them. The procession would generally end at a temple where there would be sacrifices and offerings made and prayers of thanksgiving and whatnot. Um, if you're familiar with the Titus arch that was given or was presented uh, after Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, there actually is in the bas relief on the inside of it, there's a depiction of one of these processions. Because not only would there be the general and some of his lieutenants and captains and uh, soldiers of outstanding valor, but there would also be the captives. So it's a very well-known image. The Corinthians would have known what these looked like. They would have known the honor associated with them. What's surprising is where Paul places himself in the procession. This is the procession, he says, right? The triumphant procession of Christ. So if you're going to place yourself in that triumph, where would you place yourself? Well, on the one hand, you could be in the crowd watching with what, with what Jesus has done and just celebrating, right? He's our champion. Look what he's accomplished. Or you might place yourself with kind of the, the legions marching behind your successful general, right? Your armor all shined up and polished, right? Marching proudly in front of everyone, knowing that you were a part of this victory. That's not where Paul places himself, is it? It's not where Paul places Christians. Did you notice where he put us? But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives. As captives. We're not watching. We're not marching with. We're being dragged along behind the procession. And there's a couple of really important elements, I think, of this image that Paul wants to draw our attention to. And they both relate to powerlessness, right? On the one hand, the greatness of the general was reflected in the, shall we say, in the symbols of the captives, right? 
So if you saw just a bunch of peasants being dragged along afterwards, you'd kind of think, well, that's not much of a victory. But if you saw a barbarian princeling who just recently had enough power and status, had enough influence and might, had a big enough army to actually defy the Roman legions, and now he is shackled behind some horse being dragged along, that tells you how great the general is, doesn't it? So Paul says, not so much that he was great and now I'm being dragged along, but he is reminding his readers that it is the captives who demonstrate the greatness. You want to know how great the general is? Look at the captives. You want to know what that general did? Here it is. Paul says, we are the demonstration of that. But there is also a really significant component of the powerlessness. The captive had no power. No influence, no wealth, no honor, no status, and no future apart from the future given to them by the general. If the general wanted to set them free in an act of mercy, they could do so. But the captive had no say in that. They might beg for mercy, but they weren't going to receive it unless the general gave it to them. The general might have them executed, as it was quite common in these sorts of processions. You get dragged through the city to be made fun of and then executed. He might have sold them into slavery or made them a slave in his own, uh, in his own household. The, the slave, though, has no freedom, no future apart from the future that their general provides for them. Paul says Christian ministry, Christian service, the gospel-shaped life is a life where we have no power, no influence, no wealth, no status, no future, apart from the future, status, honor, and power of the one we are following. It's a pretty confronting image, isn't it? And then he follows it up. Then he kind of shifts imagery he says in verse 15, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. It's almost as if Paul says, you've got this image of, of all of us as following Jesus being dragged along by our wrists with no power and no future apart from that which Jesus gives to us. He says, take that as a parable. When Jesus told parables, he often told them in order to, shall we say, assess the state of someone's heart. Now, Jesus would tell a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who did something or a vine or something or a guy who found some treasure. You think, what do you mean that the kingdom of heaven is like that? And to those who went, that's just rubbish, I'm walking away, told them something about their heart. What Jesus was looking for was those who would think through the image, who would consider it more deeply. And that's what Paul ends up doing here. He talks about the aroma, which may have been referenced to the incense. It may have been referenced to the sacrificial smells that would have taken place in one of these events. But essentially, what Paul is saying is there are two responses to this life. There are those who look at this life and they go, that is somehow, mysteriously, the real way to live. There are those who look at this life, he says, that I'm living this life of powerlessness, this life without status, this life without influence, this life where my future is tied up in Christ. Some will look at this and they will go, that 
is living. We are to them the aroma of Christ. And there are others, he says, who will think that this is just stupid. That living this way, that allowing ourselves to be dragged along about not uh, determining our own future, but allowing our future to be wrapped up in Jesus, just going to think it's dumb. And then he asks a question. And who is equal to such a task? And I think we often take this question as rhetorical, right? Paul just is basically saying, who is equal to following Jesus? And we go, well, nobody is. Nobody's up to that, right? It's kind of this little expression of humility, right? Kind of an aside, a rhetorical question where we expect the answer of no one. However, through the opening section of 2 Corinthians, we've been introduced to one problem between Paul and the Corinthians. They misunderstand each other. The Corinthians mistake Paul's intentions. They're questioning all sorts of things. But as we'll learn as the letter unfolds, is there are also some new apostles who have arrived in Corinth. And they are telling the Corinthians that following Paul is stupid. His way of living is dumb. This is the way you ought to live. Who is equal? To this task, Paul says. And I think it's a legitimate question. He wants the Corinthians, he wants us to answer that question. Who is equal to this? Who are the people who are able to live this kind of life, dragged along as captives behind the Lord Jesus? Who are fit to be the people who live out the implications of that kind of lifestyle? Who's up for that? He wants them to answer it because there are people who are saying you should follow a different way of living. And we got you to ask the question of one another. I hope you got there after kind of saying good day and introducing yourself. But who influences you? Whether it be in work or general life or in your Christian faith, who are the people that you followed? Who are the people who have acted as mentors and as guides and as examples for you? Whether you've known them personally or you've followed them kind of at a distance, people who have shaped you. Paul is asking, who is equal to this? Who are you following? And then he introduces us (laughs) to one of the central questions that he's going to address in the letter. It might surprise you what the question is too, what the matter is that's driven this whole letter. Because it's not actually doctrine, or at least not immediately doctrine. Listen to what he says. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, believes that this is the central thesis of the entire epistle. This is the big idea, the main point that Paul wants to drive home. Here it is. Who's worthy? Who's equal to this? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. Are you telling me this whole letter is about money? Yes, I am. It appears that there were two issues that Paul was being charged with in relationship to money. The first, ironically, was that he wasn't accepting it, right? And the reason was that in the ancient world, you you may be familiar with the idea of patronage, 
We still talk about it today where someone may be a patron of the arts, which means that they support the arts, they would financially support the arts, but they would also support artists through networks, uh, through their own influence. Well, in the ancient world, that was critical. It was the lifeblood of social interaction. You needed to find a patron or patrons who would support and encourage and open the doors for you and get you job interviews and all of those sorts of things. And here was the important thing about patronage. It wasn't just the client who benefited. It wasn't just me who benefited because I got the job interview or I got the letter of recommendation or I got that introduction to that person. No, 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 no. It was also the patron who benefited. Imagine being the patron of an artist who suddenly goes global. I was there at the beginning. I believed in them from the start, right? In the ancient world, there was a high degree of honor that came from being someone's patron. And Paul, a very popular preacher of the gospel, oh, they wanted to be a patron to him. Oh, they wanted to support him. They wanted to be his patron, allow him to be their client, to advance the work of the kingdom. And Paul said, forget it. I have been sent only by God, and I will not be sent by a patron. I only say what God has told me to say. I will not say what a patron wants me to say. I only go where God wants me to go. I will not go where my patron tells me to go. So he resisted it. From a cultural perspective, it was really weird. So that's the one thing. Paul refuses to play by our cultural rules. The second instance, though, as we'll see later in the gospel, sorry, later in the epistle, is that Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to participate in a very large financial gift to the people in Judea, to the brothers and sisters in Judea, near Jerusalem. And as we read a little bit later on, it seems that his opponents were basically saying this, that Paul is not accepting your patronage money, but he's skimming off the top of this offering for the brothers and sisters in Judea. He's being accused of mishandling finances. Isn't it interesting how such an ordinary, everyday, regular issue lies at the heart of this? Striking. Paul says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God. The word pedal is actually used elsewhere in Greek literature to describe wine merchants who watered down their product. He said, I'm not interested in profit. Instead, on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent by God. In other words, we speak with clear hearts. We speak with clear hearts you can see straight through me to the intentions of the one who sent me. My motivation is transparent before you. What is my motivation? It's the motivation of the one who sent me, the one after whom I am being dragged, the one who holds my future in his hands. Paul says this, this kind of lifestyle is the lifestyle of those who are equal to it. You want to know the kind of people you should follow, Paul says? 
You should follow the people who have, because of Christ, no power or influence apart from his, who have no desire for honor apart from the honor that Jesus has given, who have no purpose, who have no future, who have no desire or goal outside of what Jesus has sent them to do. That, he says, that. And anyone who's interested in money, he says, we need to talk about that. And so we will. Now, because of this passage being kind of transitional, it opens this long digression. We've got another couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians, and we'll kind of pause for Easter in a bit. We'll come back to it. And as I said, we won't get to the end of the digression until August or something like that. There are, I think, for us two long-term, long-range applications that I would like to, shall I say, foreshadow for us. And I would like to encourage us to take as matters of prayer and matters of reflection and matters of discussion with those around us and matters that we seek to try to begin to implement in our lives. Two things that I don't think I feel confident right now, and I'm not sure that I ever will, to be able to say, this then is what you must do. But two areas for us to begin to think through corporately as we explore 2 Corinthians and its, and its application for us. The first has to do with this idea of powerlessness, of weakness. If you've been following Jesus for some time, you may have actually heard the phrase, right? Power in weakness. The idea that in our weakness, God is strong. Paul talks about that in this letter. That's partly where that imagery comes from. But I think the temptation for us is often to say, or to divide our lives into areas where we have some strengths and areas where we have some weakness. And we expect God to help us with our weak areas, but we'll handle the other stuff. Which is not the image that Paul uses at all. The image that he uses, the central image with which he launches this entire digression, is of a captive being dragged along behind a victorious general. Paul is not going to say that there are certain areas of my life where I'm not particularly strong and God helped me. He's not going to talk about areas where he has some strength and where God helps him less or where God helps him as much because really his strength is not that big a deal. No, Paul is going to focus on what it means for him to be a captive to Jesus, which means that we have no honor, no power, no freedom, no future, nothing apart from what he will give to us. Think on that. And what kind of a life gets shaped by that? It's not one where I can kind of accept certain areas as kind of outside of the realm or purview of what God is on about. It's inviting me to always place the purposes of my captor. And he is a gracious captor one who sends us on mission, who releases us into true freedom, right? These are the things we believe. But the purposes and plans of the one who has captured us, who has captured our hearts, who has captured our lives, who has captured and grabbed our future. Think on this. Talk about it with one another. Pray about it. Reflect upon it. Meditate upon it. Begin to think about what it would look like if your life really was that of a captive. And then secondly, related to that, how transparent are our 
intentions? How transparent is our heart? When people hear our words or watch our, watch our actions, do they see through us to the words and actions and intentions of the one who sent us? Are we clear-hearted, not desiring to win or not desiring to be right or not desiring to kind of uh, do something, make a difference in some way, but just desiring to do the will of the one who sent us, to allow our hearts to become totally clear in order that our intentions might be driven by the one who sent us. Is that enough for you to do this week? We're going to keep coming back to these themes because they are critical to this entire letter. They, they, they lie at the very heart of what it is that Paul wants to address about the people that these Corinthians are being tempted to follow, about how to critique then the, the water uh, culture in which they live, the, the implications of what it means for Paul to, to, <laughs> to work with authority, to speak with authority, but not because it's his to speak out of what Jesus has sent him to rather than just what he has intended to do. For Paul, the question of who is equal to this task is those who recognize and understand themselves to be captive to Jesus Christ. Pulled along behind him, sent by him. You and I have been sent by Jesus. You'll see it on the door before you leave. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And we go in weakness, not in power. And we go in his name, not our own. And we go for his purposes, not our own. So it might be appropriate for me to pray for us as we grapple with this, don't you think? So let me invite the worship team up. We're gonna close our service in song in just a moment, but let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, <laughs> we thank you that you have not just captured us, that you've given us a task and a mission, that you've invited us to participate in your plans to restore and renew all things in Christ Jesus and given to us your Holy Spirit. We thank you that in our powerlessness, in our weakness, you are strong. For you are the one who has sent us. It's in your name that we go. It's in your spirit that we work. And I pray that over the course of this year, as a community of faith, as we grapple with what it means to, to live a weak life, to live a life as a captive to your will, that in our conversations and in our prayers and our meditation and in our practice, we, we would follow Paul as he seeks to follow you. And we pray that we might be those whose intentions and motivations are transparent and clear. That when people hear our words, what they would hear would be your heart for them. When they look at our behaviors, that what they would see is your intentions in the world. That we would be yours. Set on your purposes, your mission, your plans and purposes in the world. Lead and guide us, we pray, as we grapple with these profound and deep truths. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast, an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus. 